Today, we're talking about Ozempic and Wagovi. Now, you might have heard of these medications before. You know, it seems like it's in the news every other day. Friends or family might be taking them or have heard about them. Well, today we're going to go through exactly what these medications are, as well as all the clinical trials that exist for these medications. So first off, what is Ozempic? What is Wagovi? So these are the brand names for a molecule called semaglutide. Semaglutide is approved in the form of Ozempic for diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Wagovi is semaglutide approved for obesity. So they're different brandings, but they're the exact same identical molecule. The max dose of Ozempic is 2 milligrams, whereas the max dose of Wagovi is 2.4 milligrams. Now, knowing this, we have to then understand what semaglutide is. So semaglutide is in a class of medications called GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, this is a class of medications that typically has been used for type 2 diabetes. In recent years, GLP-1 receptor agonists have been recommended earlier and earlier for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. In the latest American Diabetes Association guidelines, they allow for the prescribing of GLP-1 receptor agonists as a first-line or second-line treatment option. To understand how these medicines work, we're going to provide a 10,000-foot overview of exactly what's going on when you take these medications and why mechanistically they make sense that they provide efficacy for type 2 diabetes. However, this will not be an exhaustive analysis of the mechanism of action. So briefly, there's something called the incretin effect, which describes the action of two incretin hormones. One is the gastric inhibitory polypeptide, or GIP, and the other is the glucagon-like peptide 1, which is GLP-1. These are the two primary incretin hormones that are secreted from the intestine after the ingestion of glucose. These hormones provide as much as half of the insulin response to oral glucose. However, in type 2 diabetes patients, the action of GIP is diminished, but the action of GLP-1 is substantially preserved, although the secretion of it appears to be diminished in type 2 diabetes patients. Therefore, the theoretical mechanism of action of semaglutide GLP-1 receptor agonist is that it will bind the GLP-1 receptor, increase the secretion, and increase the body's insulin response to oral glucose. By doing this, the mechanism is using a glucose-dependent manner, meaning that the increased response is only seen when an oral glucose load is taken in. Therefore, the body is able to provide a proportional response to the amount of glucose that is intaked. What all this means in layman's terms is that there are some hormones in the intestine that respond when you eat food, and they respond by producing insulin, which lowers your blood sugar levels after you eat. However, in type 2 diabetes, this is diminished. Therefore, providing a molecule that binds those hormones and produces more of those hormones, thus resulting in more insulin release when you eat, and downstream, lowering your blood sugars after you're eating. So we're going to talk today about exactly what the clinical trials show. Like I said, there's been endless news articles, endless talk about, is this a medication that is helpful? Is this a medication that is harmful? Who is this medication for? It's really hard to tease out from the outside looking in what the heck this medication is doing and who it is for. So today we're going to look at exactly the trials that were done, who is included in the trials, and who this medication has been approved for. So we've gone over the 10,000 foot review of what semaglutide and GLP-1 receptor agonists are. That is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg as far as the medication goes and the exact mechanisms of action. But For today, we're not going to delve deeper into that, and we're going to really look at what the results show. 
So bit of a spoiler, the results are quite impressive for type 2 diabetes. As I said, this is a class of medications that is recommended by the American Diabetes Association for first and second line treatment of diabetes. The reason for this is because it has massive A1C lowering and combined with that, it has a really low risk of hypoglycemia as well as a reduction in weight. And this results in a combination of patients being very excited to take it as well as providers being very excited to be able to give it to patients, especially if it can remove medications that have negative side effects from the patient's diabetes regimen. Perhaps the most dramatic effect is that in high-risk individuals who have diabetes, the rate of heart attacks and strokes is decreased. This means that people who have diabetes who are at high risk of having heart attacks or strokes and are treated with semaglutide have a lower risk of having heart attacks and strokes. And something like this gets both physicians and patients excited that we can have a meaningful preventative reduction in the risk of heart, something as dramatic as a heart attack and a stroke. So saying all that, now we're going to get into the Ozempic and Wagovi trials. These are deemed, as I'll mention, the SUSTAIN and STEP trials. Now, the Wagovi trials might be even more interesting than the Ozempic trials. The Ozempic trials, we have seen similar medications in this class have similar trials and similar results. Maybe not to this degree before this, but we have seen similar things before. Whereas the Wagovi for a medication for weight loss, this is something that is pretty foundational and groundbreaking. And so these trials are really interesting, and we'll go through those after we go through the Ozempic diabetes trials, but they may be the more interesting trials, actually. So first, we'll dive into the trials for Ozempic for semaglutide treating type 2 diabetes. The way that these clinical trials work for medications like this is... For Ozempic, for example, there are the SUSTAIN trials. Now, this is the brand name for the trials that makes it to have clever branding and easy to remember what the trials are called by giving it this acronym. I couldn't actually tell you what the acronym stands for, but there are 11, actually 12 of these to date. And so we're going to go through all of these and examine exactly what they show. Now, first is SUSTAIN-1, and this compared Ozempic administration in people with diabetes versus placebo. So no other medications it's comparing to, just against a placebo. Now, this was a phase 3A trial, meaning phase 3 trials are usually the last stage before a medication gets approval for wide release. Now, there are stage four trials, which are longer-term follow-ups, but stage three are big randomized controlled trials that show efficacy and safety. Now, this was done in a bunch of different countries, so Canada, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, South Africa, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. People who were eligible include adults aged 18 years or older with type 2 diabetes treated with diet and exercise alone for at least 30 days before screening, so they couldn't actually be on other medications at the time. Now, their A1Cs had to be between 7 and 10. Now, why not higher than 10? Well, because at that point, you'd want them to be on at least multiple medications and very likely insulin. So they wanted to really isolate the effect of semaglutide on diabetes in this trial. They actually did some other screening as well. So 
They couldn't have used any glucose-lowering drugs in the last 90 days before screening. They couldn't have a history of pancreatitis. They couldn't have a personal or family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma or multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2. Now, this is interesting because there are some animal studies in rats, particularly, that show some increased risk of medullary thyroid carcinoma. Hasn't been seen in a clinical trial to date for uh, a GLP-1 receptor agonist medication, but this is something that is still theoretical risk, so they excluded those people from the trial. Now, the other people they excluded are people with impaired renal function, less than a GFR of, of 30, which is a very severe uh, kidney impairment. The, the only other criteria they screened was calcitonin values of at least 50. They excluded people and any acute coronary or cerebrovascular events in 90 days before randomization. So these are people who have not had a heart attack or stroke recently. They want to be extra sure that this doesn't have something negative effect on those people. Now, the way the study was designed was in a 2-2-1-1 format, meaning there was two experimental groups and two placebo groups in a ratio of 2 to 2 in the experimental groups to 1 to 1 in the placebo groups. The experimental groups received subcutaneously injected semaglutide of either 0.5 milligrams or 1 milligram, or they received once-weekly matched placebo to 0.5 milligrams or 1 milligrams. Now, the lengths that they went to to make the appearance the same for these medications is really something. So, and something we don't usually see or delve into necessarily, but they said that they're identical in appearance, but also in taste and smell. Now, I'm not sure who they got to taste what the semaglutide tastes like, but I guess it tastes the same as the placebo. So, participants received either 0.5 milligrams or 1 milligram or placebo once per week for 30 weeks, followed up by a five-week follow-up period. These patients administered their own injections, and so they were told how to do it, but then were left to their own devices to do it. The doses actually don't start out at the final doses. So these medications start at a dose of 0.25 milligrams once per week, and then they escalate up to 0.5 the next month, and then one milligram the next month for the people who are in the one milligram group. So for people who are in the 0.5 milligram group, the maintenance dose was reached after four weeks. For people on the one milligram group, this was after eight weeks. Now, people who had unacceptable hyperglycemia were offered metformin or other anti-diabetic medications, as this would be a health and safety issue for those patients. Now, a really big thing in clinical trials are the primary and secondary endpoints. So the primary endpoints is the thing that the study is powering for. And this is the big endpoint that you can be fairly confident is something that is accurate because it is the primary design of the study. It wasn't an accident that this happened to be a signal. This is something that they are saying, this is gonna happen and we're gonna show that it's gonna happen. So the primary endpoint was the change in the average hemoglobin A1C concentrations from baseline to week 30 with semaglutide versus placebo. Now, there are a host of other secondary endpoints, which we'll talk about later when we look at the results in more detail. Some of the safety endpoints they're looking at was how many adverse events happened, how many severe blood glucose hypoglycemia episodes were there, as well as other routine sort of safety examinations. They do very broad safety endpoints to identify in these large trials for these medications that are being exposed to this number of people for the first time to see, okay, is there some weird signal 
that we couldn't anticipate theoretically that is showing up in the safety data here. So all in all, what this amounted to was 129 people assigned to a half milligram semaglutide, 130 assigned to one milligram semaglutide, and 129 assigned to placebo. Now, 119 people completed the 0.5 milligram semaglutide, 123 completed the one milligram semaglutide, and 117 com completed the placebo. Now, when they do these trials, they analyze the baseline characteristics of the groups to see if there were significant differences, anything between the groups in A1C, diabetes, body weight, their BMI, their kidney function, male or female, things like that. So looking between the groups, there's no obvious signal of anything that is different you know, between them. Knowing this, we can be reasonably confident that these results are representative of a randomized group between placebo and semaglutide. Okay, now when we look at the results, again, this is over 30 weeks. So the placebo group over 30 weeks, their A1C basically did not change at all. There was minus 0.02. Now the semaglutide 0.5 milligrams, the change in A1C was minus 1.45, which this is a really big difference. Their average starting A1C was 8. So with an average starting A1C around 8, a reduction of almost one and a half percentage points in A1C easily puts them in their treatment target with just one medication. Now the semaglutide one milligram group was minus 1.55, so a 0.1 percentage point A1C different between the half milligram and the one milligram group. Both of these were easily significant over placebo, who again was basically zero change in A1C. The other big result that they analyzed was the body weight of participants at week 30. Now, this has been an issue with prior diabetes medications, including insulin and sulfonylureas, where they actually cause a little bit of weight gain. And in theory, this impairs some of the benefit of glucose lowering because you're lowering their glucose, but you're increasing their body weight, which in theory will have some negative effects on health outcome. Now, for semaglutide, we'll see that this is quite different. So for the placebo group, the placebo group actually lost about one kilogram in body weight over 30 weeks. Now this is this shows the power of placebo group. Okay, I know I'm being studied, so I'm gonna lose weight because I know I have an accountability. They're gonna be checking my weight almost every four weeks. And so not a surprise that people actually lost some weight in the placebo group. This is why it's important to have the placebo group because then we can see what the treatment effect is in comparison. So for semaglutide half milligram, they lost 3.7 kilograms, which the estimated treatment difference is two and three quarters of a kilogram. Now for the semaglutide one milligram group, they lost four and a half kilograms for an estimated treatment difference of three and a half kilograms above placebo. Now, so the difference between the semaglutide half milligram and one milligram was about 0.8 of a kilogram between participants at 30 weeks. Now they did look at some differences in lipid levels for the participants. And the only significant difference was for total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol and free fatty acids were significantly reduced with the one milligram semaglutide compared with placebo. But this was the only significant difference between any of the groups for lipids. They also looked at blood pressure differences for the groups. Now for semaglutide and placebo, these did not meet statistical significant differences. So from this trial, largely unknown whether some, does semaglutide have any effect on blood pressure? Well, nothing that we see from this trial. Now we talked a little bit about 
what an A1C reduction of one and a half means for a lot of these patients, and that you know that would largely make them hit their goal of less than seven for an A1C target. So they actually looked at this and said, what percentage of people hit that goal of less than seven? And for half milligram of semaglutide, this was 74% of people. So 74% of people with one medication that they took once a week for 30 weeks brought them to their goal. And for one milligram semaglutide, it was 72%. So largely the same. For placebo, only 25% of people met this goal, which is still a pretty striking number of people who met the goal. But regardless, that's 50% more people an absolute difference of 50% who met the goal of less than seven for an A1C. Now, less than six and a half, which is the six and a half is the cutoff to be diagnosed with type two diabetes. Now, when you take glucose lowering medications that lowers this below six and a half, this doesn't necessarily mean that you are no longer diabetic. However, your A1C is not reflective of someone who is diabetic anymore. But if you were to stop your medication, very likely your A1C would increase back above that level. So saying that, the percentage of people who reached a less than 6.5 A1C target was 59% for the half milligram semaglutide and 60% for the one milligram semaglutide, compared with 13% of the placebo group. So again, a huge difference and a really significant decrease in A1Cs for people and a huge percentage of people who are reaching their A1C goals. Now they did this again with body weight reduction and they looked at, okay, how many people got greater than a 5% body weight reduction? For placebo, this was 7%. For a half milligram semaglutide, this was 37%. For one milligram semaglutide, this was 45%. They also looked at 10% reduction in body weight. For placebo, this was 2%. For half milligram semaglutide, this was 8%. And for one milligram semaglutide, this was 13%. You know, so pretty remarkable things when normally glucose lowering medications have a tendency to increase body weight, you know, beyond metformin and well, obviously some newer glucose lowering medications, but a lot of the old ones had a negative effect on body weight, which a lot of patients didn't like, but then also there's concerns about health outcomes because of that. Now, a really interesting thing is they looked at the participants who achieved less than a 7% A1C without severe or blood glucose confirmed hypoglycemia and without weight gain. So this is looking at people who hit their goal target A1C less than 7 who did not have any severe or blood glucose confirmed events of hypoglycemia and without weight gain. So huge side effects from, like I said, diabetes medications, hypoglycemia, weight gain. This is saying who hits their goal without those major side effects. For the semaglutide group, half milligram semaglutide, 66% of people. One milligram semaglutide, 65% of people. For placebo, just 19% of people. These results really are astounding for people who have diabetes. Again, this is a trial in just people with type 2 diabetes. It's not a trial with anybody else. And again, we talked about the exclusion criteria. The study group is the study group, and that's who we can extrapolate these results to. We can't extrapolate them to any other group of people. Now, but for type 2 diabetics who meet the criteria, this is a outstanding medication which can reach you at your target A1C without significant side effects to low blood sugars and with an actual significant decrease in body weight. Now, of course, this isn't the first medication that was out that did this, but as we'll see, this medication has maybe progressed farther than other of the GLP-1 receptor agonists before it. Now, let's quickly look at the safety events. So I mentioned the hypoglycemia 
let's actually look at the numbers of what percentage of people in each group had these events. So first I just do any adverse events. So in the placebo group, and this might be shocking for people, 53% of people had an adverse event. And this is a inert molecule that they're getting injected. So it's not something where it is actively doing something in their body, but 53% of people still had an adverse event. Now, in the one milligram of semaglutide group, 56% of people. So almost no difference between the one milligram of semaglutide and the placebo, which is really remarkable. And the half milligram of semaglutide had 64%. So slightly more in the half milligram of semaglutide, but, you know, in theory, mechanistically, how does that make sense when one milligram of semaglutide is a higher dose? They then look at serious adverse events, and this starts to get into small numbers. So 4% of people in placebo had a serious adverse event. 5% in each of the semaglutide groups have had a serious adverse event. Now, where these adverse events happened is the difference between the placebo and the semaglutide groups. So in GI adverse events, so GI adverse events, including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, those sorts of things, the placebo group only had 15% of people who had these side effects. Now, in the semaglutide groups, this was 38%, so much more common. Now, the number of severe adverse events for GI, placebo had zero. The semaglutide groups had 1% and 2%, respectively. So these are really small numbers. Like In absolute numbers of people, this is one person in the half milligram semaglutide group and two people in the one milligram semaglutide group. Now, there was a lot more of mild and moderate GI side effects, as I was saying before, as it's reflected in the total this was significantly more for semaglutide compared to placebo. Now, perhaps the crucial number here is looking at the adverse events leading to premature treatment discontinuation. So people had a higher rate of GI events. Did this lead to higher numbers of people leaving the study? You know, Did they say that, okay, these side effects were bad enough where I'm going to stop the medication? Which this is really the practical number for physicians who are prescribing this medication is is this going to make my patient want to stop this medication? For the placebo group, this was just 2%. For the semaglutide groups, this was 5% and 6% respectively. Again, not zero, but these are very small numbers. 3% and 4% above placebo, suggesting that 96-97% in the groups respectively um, above placebo were able to tolerate the medication enough so that they wanted to stay on rather than leaving. And they actually break down the adverse events even in more detail. So they break down by symptoms, so nausea, diarrhea, headache, lipase concentration, constipation, dyspepsia. There's a lot of data, and it's worthwhile looking through. The biggest effects that were seen were increases in nausea and diarrhea. So in the placebo group, 8% of people had nausea. 24% of people had nausea in the one milligram of semaglutide group. And in the half milligram semaglutide group, this is 20% of people as well. So a pretty significant number of people who are having some nausea at some point during the trial. Now, number of people who are having diarrhea, 2% of the placebo group, 11% and 13% of the semaglutide groups. Again, this is a decent number of people who are having diarrhea and nausea from, from the medication. However, again, this is a higher number and higher percentage of people than the number who actually left the study. So the side effects that were experienced were infrequent enough and were mild enough that people didn't consider leaving the study because of it. The only other big difference between placebo and semaglutide groups as far as adverse GI events was for constipation and for vomiting. 
Again, these were all less than 10%, um, lower than the ones mentioned before, but they were there. Now they look at other adverse events. So no no episodes of pancreatitis happen in any of the groups. They there were a couple episodes of cholelithiasis, meaning gallstones, for the semaglutide groups. So one in the one milligram semaglutide group and one and three in the half milligram semaglutide group. So again, these were remarkable results in the sustained one trial. Average A1Cs decreased from eight to six and a half. This correlates to average blood sugars changing from 183 to 140. Again, huge percentage of people hit their A1C goals in the intervention groups compared to placebo, as well as significant weight loss in the intervention groups compared with placebo. One interesting thing that they note is they were expecting to see a dose difference for A1C lowering in the intervention group versus the placebo group. Now, why didn't they necessarily see a significant difference? They hypothesize maybe it was because the percentage of people who achieved an A1C below 7 and 6.5 was so high that the signal difference between a half milligram and one milligram was just not able to be seen because the lower you go in A1C, the harder it is to sort of see a signal and the treatment effect minimizes more and more. They did note, though, that the weight loss appeared to be increased for the one milligram versus the half milligram, which they're thinking is suggestive that there is a difference between the one milligram and half milligram. And this is something, obviously, that they want to explore later. And spoiler, it's something they do explore later with higher and higher doses. What this trial showed is that semaglutide significantly lowers A1C without producing hypoglycemic events and with weight loss. As we'll see, they'll explore a lot of other effects of semaglutide in future trials. Now, we went through this trial pretty in-depth, and I'll link to it so that you can read it on your own. I think it's important to go through at least one of the trials in detail, because the way these trials are set up, there's so many factors and nuances to the trials that you have to really see all the details to know, okay, this is an effect, an outcome that is something that I have confidence in. So it's good to hear and see the details of the trial at least once. And I'll go through, and when we go through the other trials, I'll try and mention any differences that I know of between the trials as far as their methods, what populations were involved, etc. But we might not go through each trial in such depth, otherwise it would take a really long time. Now we'll see that for the Sustain 2 trial, and I feel like I'm talking about Rocky movie sequels here or something, but the Sustain 2 trial, it mirrors Sustain 1 in a lot of ways. The biggest difference is that we see it's comparing against citagliptin, which is a DPP-4 inhibitor. It also is given to people who are taking metformin, thiazolidine diones, or both. Similar A1C ranges, same semaglutide doses, but this time people are studied for 56 weeks, so a little over a year. And I probably should have mentioned this in talking about the first trial, but this is a double-blind trial, meaning that the participants and the assessors putting the trial on do not know which group someone is in. So nobody involved with the measuring or receiving knows who has which molecule. Now, this is important because it reduces the risk of bias from entering into studies with placebo groups. If you know someone's in the intervention group and, hey, subconsciously you want the intervention group to work, well, it might end up affecting 
things in one way or another. Now, the way they did this is really fascinating. So they did placebos for both groups. So one of the groups was semaglutide once weekly plus oral citagliptin placebo once daily. So they're getting the real semaglutide, but a placebo citagliptin. The other group is getting semaglutide one milligram plus the placebo citagliptin, whereas the real citagliptin group is getting citagliptin 100 milligrams once daily, but they're getting a subcutaneous semaglutide placebo of 0.5. So it shows 0.5 on the pen, but they're only getting a placebo. Then, of course, the last group, oral citagliptin 100 milligrams plus one milligram of placebo semaglutide once weekly. Again, same primary endpoint, change in A1C. The main secondary endpoint was change in body weight from the baseline to week 56. The main safety endpoints were adverse events and hypoglycemic episodes. So in this trial, it was just over 1,200 participants, so around 400 in each group. The mean A1C was 8.1. At week 56, the A1C was reduced by 1.3% in the semaglutide half milligram group, 1.6% in the semaglutide one milligram group. Citagliptin had a half a percent of A1C lowering. This means that the treatment difference between semaglutide and citagliptin was 0.77 of a percent of A1C for the half milligram and 1.06 of a percentage A1C for the one milligram semaglutide group. This is showing that there was non-inferiority and superiority, meaning that it's showing in the trial that semaglutide is a superior agent for lowering A1C in this patient population. And again, this is patients with type 2 diabetes. Very similar adverse effects as seen from the first trial. There was an increase in people who discontinued treatment because of adverse events between 5 and 7% of participants with semaglutide above placebo. There was a significant number of patients who discontinued because of adverse events. This was 5 to 7% greater than citagliptin. And the most common adverse events were GI in nature again. Again, the most common being nausea and diarrhea. In 18% of the semaglutide groups, about 11% above the citagliptin group. And diarrhea occurred about 6% greater than citagliptin group. No significant difference between hypoglycemia was seen between the groups. And the conclusions that were reached by the investigators from this trial were that once weekly semaglutide was superior to citagliptin at improving glycemic control and reducing body weight in participants with type 2 diabetes who were on metformin, thiazolidine dions, or both. Now, this is interesting because DPP-4s are related, almost like a cousin, to GLP-1 receptor agonists. So, DPP-4s break down GLP-1 receptor agonists. So, the DPP-4 inhibitors are essentially removing a breakdown of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. So, they work very similarly, but this is showing that a direct GLP-1 receptor agonist is more effective than using the sort of workaround second-order step of inhibiting citagliptin, a DPP-4 inhibitor. Now, because they are so similar, the recommendation is actually to not be on both of these medications together because they are upregulating the same exact step. It's not advisable to be on both of these medications at the same time. Another interesting thing that was seen in this study was that 
there was a dose effect between the semaglutide half milligram and the one milligram of semaglutide, which was not necessarily seen in the SUSTAIN-1 trial. As we'll see, this will get explored further as we go through all of the trials. The secondary endpoint, of course, was the mean body weight loss. And again, this is very similar to the SUSTAIN-1 trial in that semaglutide 1 milligram lost 6 kilograms, semaglutide half milligram lost just over 4 kilograms, citagliptin lost around 2 kilograms. So again, pretty big treatment difference between about 4 kilograms from 1 milligram semaglutide versus citagliptin. So pretty good response seen between very similar to the SUSTAIN-1 trial. In the SUSTAIN-3 trial, semaglutide went up against exenatide, which is a new challenger coming to the scene here. This is an incretin mimetic, which stimulates the pancreas to release insulin. Now, we'll go through this trial pretty quickly here. It's not many significant differences were seen with the other trials, but people either got one milligram of semaglutide or two milligrams of extended release exenatide for 56 weeks. And again, base, uh, primary endpoint was the change from baseline in hemoglobin A1C at week 56, as well as secondary endpoint of body weight reduction again. A1C was reduced by 1.5% with semaglutide and 0.9% with exenatide ER. Again, these medications that are being, semaglutide is being compared to are generally good medications that have pretty good A1C lowering and do not result in negative adverse events. However, the semaglutide had about a 0.62% A1C lowering over the exenatide, which is for A1C lowering is a pretty big deal. And again, as far as body weight goes, very similar results in this trial. Semaglutide reduced body weight by 5.6 kilograms, and exenatide extended release reduced by 1.9 kilograms. Again, very similar adverse event profiles as seen before with GI-related events being more common. Um, but in this trial, semaglutide 1 milligram was shown to be superior to exenatide extended release 2 milligrams. Okay, SUSTAIN-4 is a really big trial because it compares once-weekly semaglutide versus once-daily insulin glargine. Now, this is with an add-on to metformin and with or without sulfonylureas. This is in insulin-naive patients with type 2 diabetes. So this is important because it's comparing insulin with semaglutide, which insulin, by the time patients are on it, they're not meeting their A1C goals despite optim optimized medical therapy regardless. And so this is the option they have to turn to. So this is exploring, is semaglutide a different option than for patients to explore? And to talk about this trial, I'll have to talk a little bit about insulin, insulin glargine here. So it is a long-acting insulin, which if you're not familiar with insulin, I assume most people probably think that insulins are all the same. Insulins are actually very different. So there are novel mechanisms by which insulin is produced. So insulin glargine is a long-acting insulin, meaning that it's not releasing all of the insulin at once. It's gradually, gradually releasing it over the course of a day. And this mechanism makes it so that you're not tanking the blood sugars at any one time, but providing a baseline insulin level where patients' blood sugars are generally lower throughout the day. Now, the advantage of this, again, is you're reducing the risk of hypoglycemic events with this type of insulin, and you just have to take it once a day in comparison to taking short-acting insulin with meals. 
The other big benefit, of course, is you don't have to factor in how much you're eating necessarily. It's a one-time-a-day baseline insulin. You're not titrating it based on what your sugar is before your meal, how much you're eating. You don't have to worry about any of that. You take it in the morning or at night once a day, and that's it. Now, the way this insulin works is it gets titrated up. So they started at a dose of 10 units per day, and then were titrated weekly so that their pre-breakfast glucose target was hit between 72 and 99 milligrams per deciliter. Basically, all that means is that the insulin was titrated to get a glucose level that was acceptable to be in a normal range. And again, the comparison groups here were half a milligram of semaglutide and one milligram of semaglutide using the same dose escalation protocol that we had talked about previously. Again, the same exact primary and secondary endpoints here with change in A1C and body weight reduction. Now, this was done over 30 weeks. So at 30 weeks, the mean baseline A1C, which was 8.17 at the baseline, at week 30 then, in the half milligram group, it was a reduction of 1.21% A1C lowering. In the one milligram group, it was 1.64%. So this is versus insulin glargine, which had an A1C lowering of 0.83 of a percent. So the estimated treatment difference for the half milligram is almost 0.4 of a percent of A1C with a half milligram and 0.81 of a A1C percent for the one milligram semaglutide. Again, this is a big difference between the groups, especially with something as powerful as insulin. Now, the secondary endpoint is also really interesting because the body weight reductions are largely in line with what we've seen before with three and a half kilograms of body weight loss in the half milligram group and 5.17 kilogram loss in the one milligram group of semaglutide. Now, this is versus a weight gain of 1.15 kilograms in the insulin glargine group. So that's the main treatment difference. Again, this is four and a half and 6.3 kilograms for the half and one milligram of semaglutide groups. Now, again, this is interesting because the effects of insulin are seen here where you actually gain body weight. You have A1C lowering, but you actually end up gaining body weight too. Now, this highlights a big advantage of the GLP-1 receptor agonist and semaglutide in particular here against something like insulin. The other really interesting, from a safety standpoint, was confirmed hypoglycemia. In the semaglutide groups, it was 4% and 6% respectively. And again, remember, this is people who are on other medications, including sulfonylureas potentially. With the insulin glargine group, it was 11%. So this was significantly more than the semaglutide groups. And again, the unique adverse effects that were seen were nausea in the semaglutide groups compared with the insulin groups. And again, similar differences in discontinuations, about 8% more in the semaglutide groups versus the insulin group, probably largely because of the GI side effects seen. Now, so to sum this, this trial up, the semaglutide compared with insulin glargine resulted in one greater reductions in A1C, significantly greater reductions and significant reductions in body weight compared to insulin, which actually increased body weight in participants, as well as fewer hypoglycemic episodes, and again, demonstrated a relatively tolerable safety profile. So looking at the results of this trial really makes you consider, it really makes you consider in an optimal world, which are you reaching for first? Is insulin something you're reaching for for a patient on a regular basis for someone with an A1C in this range of around 7 to 10? Or is a GLP-1 receptor agonist the thing you're reaching for? Well, this trial seems to be pretty clear that 
you have more A1C lowering, you have fewer hypoglycemic events, and patients are losing body weight. And the injectable, so the semaglutide is injectable, but the injection experience comparing semaglutide to insulin is night and day in how easy it is in comparison to something like insulin. These are a lot of the reasons that so many physicians are ecstatic about these medications in treating diabetes when they don't have to treat patients with insulin instead. And patients are ecstatic about this too. You know, they don't want to gain body weight. They don't want to give themselves insulin injections every day. And so this is a great alternative as demonstrated in this study. In the SUSTAIN-5 trial, semaglutide is actually teaming up with insulin rather than comparing it to insulin. So this is in patients with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes receiving basal insulin, like insulin glargine, with or without metformin. And so this is, again, the half milligram and one milligram doses of semaglutide. Again, they're looking at the primary endpoint being A1C lowering at 30 weeks, secondary endpoint being change in body weight from baseline to week 30. Again, this is like deja vu. So with the half milligram semaglutide, 1.4% A1C lowering. One milligram, 1.8% A1C lowering versus basically zero for placebo. When we look at the hypoglycemic events, there were 11 and 14 patients in the semaglutide half and one milligram group versus seven patients in the placebo group. So this is about an estimated rate ratio of two, which was not significant, but was a trend to towards more hypoglycemic events. Why would there be a trend toward this? Well, you still have basal insulin, which if you have less blood sugar in your system in general, the basal insulin may need to be adjusted so that hypoglycemic events are not happening, even though it is something that is rare with basal insulin. If you do not adjust the titration, this is something where you could end up with hypoglycemic events because all of a sudden you don't need all this insulin because your body is being signaled to produce it with the GLP-1 receptor agonist like semaglutide. Now, when we look at the secondary endpoint of body weight reduction, again, 3.7 and 6.4 kilogram losses in the half and one milligram groups respectively and a 1.4 kilogram loss in the placebo group. And exactly similar, adverse events higher for semaglutide, 0.5 and 1 milligram, 4.5% and 6.1% discontinuation versus 1% for the placebo group. In this trial, though, we see that even semaglutide added to basal insulin is producing the same exact A1C lowering and body weight reductions in patients with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes versus placebo. And, you know, people at this point might be like, why do companies have to do all of these trials? They're doing it with a bunch of different specific molecules. Well, we can't know for certain that these molecules are going to not interact when they are used. And we don't know for sure whether there's going to be safety events when when they're used with patients who are taking insulin versus patients who are taking DPP-4 inhibitors versus patients who are taking exenatide. So, they do all of these trials with all these different drugs to ensure that in all of these patient populations, this is something that they can take. They want to cast their net of patients as wide as possible. The result is being that you get very thorough and wide-ranging studies that are done on a wide range of populations and patients taking different medications. And I think it's something that isn't necessarily seen a lot of times unless you look at all these trials and see, wow, okay, they actually did a ridiculous number of trials here to show that in every single variation, the treatment outcome isn't affected by 
what other medications people are taking. Okay, now on to Sustain 6, which is probably the biggest trial out of any of these that we'll talk about today. And I mean biggest in number of patients, but also biggest in impact that it has. So Sustain 6 looked at cardiovascular outcomes with semaglutide treatment in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, I didn't know this until reading through this, but there's actually regulatory guidance that you need to establish cardiovascular safety of new diabetes therapies to rule out that there's excess cardiovascular risk with the therapy. So I didn't realize that this is something you had to do just to make sure that it's not causing harm. Well, the investigators theorized that, okay, this is not going to be a harmful medication. Now, they probably were thinking in the back of their mind that, hey, this is probably going to be something that will be helpful to patients in cardiovascular, and you know that they were hoping that that would be the case. So this was in over 3,000 patients with type 2 diabetes who were on standard care regimens to receive either semaglutide half milligram or one milligram weekly, or placebo. This is for 104 weeks. So two years exactly. The primary outcome was actually a composite. So it's the first occurrence of cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke. In layman's terms, how much time passed until the first heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular death? This was done not only in patients with diabetes, but was done in patients with cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, or both. 83% of patients in the study had cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, or both. After 104 weeks, the patients in the semaglutide group had a rate of the primary outcome of 6.6%. So 6.6% of people in the semaglutide group had events in the primary outcome, heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death. In the placebo group, 8.9% of people had those events happen. Now, to talk about this, we have to talk about someone called a hazard ratio. So the hazard ratio is actually quite simple. Like it says, it's a ratio, and it's between the intervention group and the placebo group. And like it says, it's describing a hazard. The easy way to think about this is anything less than one, the intervention group is less likely to have the event happen. Anything more than one, the intervention group is more likely to have the event happen. So because the event occurred less often in the semaglutide group 6.6% of the time compared with 8.9% of the time in the placebo group, this is a hazard ratio of 0.74. Now, what the heck does that mean? So like I said, less than one intervention group was superior in reducing the rate of the primary outcome. Now, what you can do instead of saying a hazard ratio of 0.74, you can say this is a 26% reduction in the rate of the primary outcome. Now, they do break it down further than just the primary outcome because it is a composite that's made up of three different things. So for non-fatal myocardial infarctions or heart attacks, the semaglutide group, it occurred in 2.9% of participants, whereas placebo group, 3.9%. Exact same hazard ratio, 0.74. The individual difference for this specific marker did not quite reach significance, a p-value of 0.12. In non-fatal strokes, the rate in the semaglutide group is 1.6% compared with 2.7% in placebo. This is a 0.61 hazard ratio or 39% reduction that did reach statistical significance on its own. 
Now, death from cardiovascular cause, the other factor in there, did not have a statistically significant difference between the groups. A hazard ratio of 0.98. It occurred in 2.7% of the semaglutide group and 2.8% of the placebo group. The only other significant markers seen were in one revascularization, which occurred less in the semaglutide group to a hazard ratio of 0.65. Now, revascularization means of the coronary vessels, which are the vessels in the heart, and sometimes they need to be revascularized or blood flow needs to be restored to those vessels, and that means that they're blocked. And so this happened less in the semaglutide group versus the placebo group. Now, the other positive outcome that was seen for semaglutide was new or worsening nephropathy, so kidney damage, was less frequent in the semaglutide group, happened 3.8% of the time versus 6.1% of the time in placebo group for a hazard ratio of 0.64. On the flip side, one potentially concerning signal was that the retinopathy complications or complications related to damage to the eyes was more common in the semaglutide group, and significantly so, hazard ratio of 1.76 happened in 3% of patients versus 1.8% of patients in the placebo group. Now, the primary composite outcome had a 95% confidence interval at 0.58 to 0.95, so it did reach statistical significance. P-value was 0.02 for superiority, and again, the primary composite outcome occurred in 6.6% of people with semaglutide and 8.9% of people with placebo. And again, sound like a broken record here, but the adverse events were unchanged from prior trials. Discontinuation rates were almost exactly the same as prior trials, um, so nothing new on that front. So sustained 6 showed a really big finding that in patients with type 2 diabetes who are at high cardiovascular risk, the rate of heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death was significantly lower among patients who got semaglutide versus placebo. This is a huge deal because when thinking about prescribing medications to patients with diabetes, obviously we care about lowering their A1C levels because of the complications from just elevated sugars alone. However, the bigger thing that comes in my mind when I'm thinking about um, thinking about these things is, is this something that's going to prevent serious health events in this patient's life? And for people who have had cardiovascular events in the past and have diabetes, this trial showed that by administering semaglutide to a patient, the risks of having a heart attack or a stroke were significantly less. And that's something that has a huge impact and outcome for a patient's life. And so non-surprisingly, this is something that the medical world was very excited about to see. And like I said, this was a huge trial that really changes the landscape of how we think about semaglutide as a medication. And to me, this is the biggest source of why we say this is a life-changing medication. If we are able to prevent heart attacks and strokes from happening in patients, that's something that changes the course of someone's life and significantly improves it for the better. And so this is something, not only are we treating a number and reducing complications of chronically elevated blood sugars, but also we're able to prevent real-world cardiovascular outcomes from occurring in patients with diabetes and prior history of cardiovascular disease. All right, so moving on then to Sustain 7. Now, this is a bit like reaching the climax of the movie and then still having an hour to go. So. 
we're going to move through the rest of these trials fairly quickly. Again, I think the adage beating a dead horse would come into play pretty quickly here. So we're going to go through these in a timely manner and get the big results here. So in Sustain 7, semaglutide was compared to dulaglutide, which is another GLP-1 receptor agonist in the family. And semaglutide was compared to see, is it superior to dulaglutide in treating diabetes? Same exact outcomes, A1C lowering and body weight. So as far as A1C lowering at both doses of both semaglutide and dulaglutide, semaglutide was superior by about 0.4 of a percentage point of A1C. As far as body weight, the differences in treatments between semaglutide and dilaglutide was about 2 and 3 kilograms respectively with the different doses. This trial demonstrated superiority of semaglutide over dilaglutide at the doses specified, so 0.5 compared to dilaglutide 0.75 milligrams and semaglutide 1 milligram versus 1.5 milligrams of dilaglutide. In sustain 8, semaglutide was compared with an SGLT2 inhibitor, canagliflozin. Now, we'll have to chat a little bit about what SGLT2 inhibitors are and to get some context for what this study means. So SGLT2 inhibitors are remarkable medications that have really good outcomes in patients. Now, this being said, they don't have the most powerful A1C lowering of diabetes medications. They have very positive effects in certain populations for heart kidney function, and they're actually approved for heart failure and chronic kidney disease independent of diabetes. So like I said, there are remarkable medications that have really important and powerful effects on patients with diabetes. They don't necessarily have the greatest A1C lowering. So in this in this study, they compared semaglutide and canagliflozin, and again, they're looking at A1C and body weight reductions. One interesting thing is that the SGLT2 inhibitors also have some modest weight loss to their medications. So the A1C reduction, semaglutide lowered by about a half percentage point more than canagliflozin. And the body weight reduction was only about a kilogram more than canagliflozin. Because like I said, the SGLT2 inhibitors also have some weight loss components to them. So in sustain 8, semaglutide was shown superior to canagliflozin in reducing A1C and body weight in patients with type 2 diabetes who were on metformin therapy. In addition to comparing semaglutide to canagliflozin, they also looked at the effect of semaglutide on top of an SGLT2 inhibitor. And again, they're looking at A1C lowering and body weight reduction here. A1C lowering was 1.4% and body weight reduction was 3.81 kilograms. So this adding semaglutide on top of an SGLT2 inhibitors, no unique adverse effects and was tolerated in line with previous studies, as well as the A1C lowering was the same for other studies. And weight loss was also around four kilograms. Now, this is an important one because it shows that you can stack SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists for patients. And like I said, this is important because SGLT2 inhibitors are the other class of medications that have shown positive effects on health outcomes for patients. So showing that you can combine these two in a safe and effective manner was something that was important to do. And that's what they showed in Sustain 9. In sustain 10, 
semaglutide was compared with liraglutide as an add-on to people who were on one to three oral anti-diabetic meds and still had A1Cs between 7 and 11. So liraglutide is another medication, a GLP-1 receptor agonist that's in the same class, of course, as semaglutide. So a bit of rivals here, comparing semaglutide to liraglutide. And again, same endpoints. So semaglutide decreased A1C by 1.7%, whereas liraglutide did by 1%. Body weight reduction, 5.8 kilograms of semaglutide, 1.9 kilograms with liraglutide. So difference of 3.8 kilograms. Similar safety outcomes were seen, more discontinuations with semaglutide versus liraglutide um, in similar distributions to what we have seen prior. So in sustained 10, semaglutide was shown to be superior to liraglutide in reducing A1C and body weight. Similar safety profiles again, but like I said, higher rates of GI side effects um, with semaglutide versus liraglutide. Sustain 11 compared semaglutide with mealtime insulin in addition to metformin and long-acting insulin in type 2 diabetics. Now we should probably talk about what mealtime insulin is and what exactly the regimens patients are usually on. So patients are who are on insulin are usually on long-acting insulin and then if needed mealtime insulin. So you have your baseline insulin but then when you're eating you're getting spikes of glucose that the basal insulin, the long-acting, isn't able to handle. So you get these severe spikes that causes your sugars to be in the 200s, 300s and you have mealtime insulin to help control those those spikes. Now in theory this keeps you at a lower glucose throughout the day, helps control those spikes. The obvious challenges of that is that you have to, one, for sure eat after, because if you take your insulin, you you administer it beforehand. So you take your insulin. If you don't eat, you're going to get hypoglycemic because of it. So you have to make sure you're eating after you take your insulin. And you also, of course, have to give yourself insulin three times a day, which is no small thing. And so this is something that, of course, patients don't love. In addition to it, you're checking your sugars before each meal. So not only are you taking your insulin, but you're also pricking your fingers to see what your blood glucose is before a meal. Now, like I said, typically mealtime insulin is added after long-acting insulin is in place and isn't controlling blood sugars well enough. So in this trial in patients, type 2 diabetic patients who are on metformin and long-acting insulin, they looked at adding mealtime insulin three times a day versus adding semaglutide to a patient's regimen. What are the A1C outcomes? What are the hypoglycemic events? And what are the changes in body weight? So those are the big things they were looking at. But this is a big trial because, again, anytime we're thinking about using insulin, it's typically patients who have exhausted a lot of options. And so what are the results if we try a new option? Could it reduce the number of times patients have to take insulin? Could it reduce the risk of hypoglycemic events? Well, let's let's take a look. So A1C was reduced by 1.5 percentage points with semaglutide and 1.2 percentage points with mealtime insulin. Now, this is an estimated treatment difference of almost 0.3 of a percentage point. So this was a significant difference. There were few severe hypoglycemic episodes in in either group, and there's no statistical difference between the groups. Now, a big difference was the change in body weight. So at week 52, semaglutide patients lost 4.1 kilograms. People who were on insulin mealtime gained 2.8 kilograms. 6% more people experienced 
adverse effects that, again, most were mild to moderate. So in Sustain 11, it was shown that in people who had basal long-acting insulin and metformin, once a week semaglutide, had superior glycemic control to mealtime insulin and provided greater weight loss than was seen in the insulin mealtime group who actually gained weight. There were surprisingly not a difference in the hypoglycemic events seen in this trial. Okay, now lastly, we have the Sustain Forte trial. This is the last of the Sustain trials to date, and this one is also another really important one and one that has a lot of practical implications for patients and the doses and medications they're receiving for their diabetes. So in this trial, patients were given either one milligram of semaglutide or two milligrams of semaglutide. So they said one's better than 0.5, is two better than one? And again, they're looking at A1C and body weight reduction. So the A1C lowering at week 40 was 2.2 percentage points with semaglutide 2 milligrams and 1.9 percentage point with semaglutide 1 milligram. This is an estimated treatment difference of 0.23 of a percentage point. This was a significant difference between the groups. The change in mean body weight at week 40 was negative 6.9 kilograms with semaglutide 2 milligrams and negative 6 kilograms with semaglutide one milligram. So estimated treatment difference of 0.93 of a kilogram, almost one kilogram difference between the semaglutide two versus one. The Again, the GI effects were the most common adverse effects, and they were very similar between the groups. So in sustained forte, semaglutide two milligrams was shown to be superior to one milligram semaglutide in reducing A1C levels with additional body weight loss and a similar safety profile, which is a big thing because if it has a similar safety profile and people need additional A1C lowering, this is a great option for them to intensify treatment. And if they're already on it and they're tolerating it well, likely that they'll do okay intensifying to two milligrams. And if they don't, you can just change them back down to the one milligram dose. So this provides a nice intensification option with additional A1C lowering and weight loss reduction. Now in the real world now, this is the maximum dose of semaglutide because this is the trial showing the max dose. There hasn't been a trial done for diabetes with a higher dose than this two milligrams. Because of that, that's the max dose that you can prescribe for a patient with diabetes. Next, we'll look at the trials done in obesity, which admittedly are probably even more exciting for people to hear than the diabetes trials. Okay, so we move on now to Wagovi. So we were just talking about all the sustained trials. You know, we keep saying, I keep saying semaglutide. In the sustained trials, the brand name for that semaglutide is Ozempic. So that's what you see the commercials, you see Ozempic. The molecule is semaglutide. And in the in the papers, nothing is mentioning Ozempic in the papers. It's always semaglutide. And so now we're moving on to Wagovi. So Ozempic was approved for diabetes. Wagovi is approved for obesity. So we're going to go through the trials and see exactly why this was approved for obesity. And I think, you know, both get talked about in the media, Ozempic and Wagovi. I think the initiation of so much controversy and so much talk in the news about it is because of the Wagovi trials. 
you know, because they show in people without diabetes effects. So this is why I think there is so much talk about it and so much controversy. So we're going to go through all of the step trials. There are a few less than the sustained trials. So we'll go through them fast. And the honestly, the results are pretty shocking for weight loss. Um, if you're unfamiliar, the weight loss treatments in the past rarely reach 10% weight loss sustained. And if it is, unlikely that it's going to be able, either able to be taken for longer than a year due to side effects regulations, or um, unlikely that the effect is going to be maintained at that level for years and years. The options available for weight loss, many people were just not prescribing medications for weight loss because the benefits most of the time did not outweigh the side effects. People found them intolerable for a lot of reasons. And so there are some effective weight loss medications. This isn't saying that there aren't effective weight loss, weight loss medications that aren't GLP-1 receptor agonists, but many, many people found them to be intolerable to take for long, long terms. And as a result, that really limited their applicability and the weight loss reductions, the averages were very frequently less than 10% of body weight which many patients and providers found unsatisfactory and not worth the side effect trade-offs that were there. And maybe in the future, we'll talk about some of what those, what some of those medications are. Um, but just the context here, when we talk about these trials and just how foundational these trials are for Wagovi. So, Starting the Wagovi trials, these are titled the STEP trials, which if you've done med school or residency, that might have gave you a twinge of panic hearing STEP, but these are the STEP trials for Wagovi. And these are what are evaluating semaglutide for weight loss. Now, this is actually the same company that has the molecule semaglutide. This is the same company that's doing the sustained trials as the step trials. They're pursuing different indications with the different trials. And so they ended up getting different branding, Wagovi and Ozempic. Um, but again, this is the same company, same molecule. Um, so you'll see similarities in these trials, but we'll go through this first trial. Again, this is a very foundational trial um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021, March of 2021. This is a revolutionary paper in the treatment of obesity. Um, sincerely. So we'll go through this one in a little bit more detail, uh, just like we did with the first one of the sustained trials. So participants who were enrolled in this trial were 18 years or older, had a BMI of 30 or greater, or a BMI of 27 or greater with one or more untreated weight-related comorbidities, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, sleep apnea, cardiovascular disease, etc. Now, these patients had to have self-reported unsuccessful dietary efforts to lose weight. In the majority of my experience, that is an overwhelmingly common thing. People have tried and tried and tried. And so doubtful that many people had not tried dietary efforts before. Most people with a BMI above 30 have tried one diet or another um, and have found varying or little success with it. That's not to say that dietary efforts can't be successful, but in these this patient population, the dietary efforts that they had tried had not been successful. And we'll actually see with this study and subsequent studies 
the effect of dietary and lifestyle interventions on people with weight loss and how profound it can be. Now, the exclusion criteria for this trial, it's kind of funny because diabetes is an exclusion criteria. They wanted to see this in patients without diabetes, which sounds a little crazy because this is a diabetes medication. It lowered A1C by almost a point and a half or two percentage points at times. This, like I said, is a diabetes medication. So they're excluding people with diabetes here. And they are also excluding people history of chronic pancreatitis or acute pancreatitis within 180 days before enrollment, excluding people with previous surgical obesity treatment, so bypass surgeries, and the use of anti-obesity medications within 90 days before enrollment. They don't want anything messing up what the effects of the medication really are. They want to see unaffected what does semaglutide do for people without diabetes who have obesity. So this trial was done over a matter of 68 weeks with a follow-up period of seven weeks where people did not receive semaglutide placebo or lifestyle interventions. Now, the dose they used in this trial was 2.4 milligrams, again, once a week subcutaneously. Now, this is interesting because 2.4 milligrams has never been studied in a diabetes trial. Now, 2 milligrams has, but 2.4 milligrams hasn't. Now, why did they choose that? How did they come up with that dose? I'm actually not as familiar with why they picked 2.4 out of all doses, which is interesting because what we'll talk about later of some of the dose trials they're pursuing now, which are quite different than 2.4 milligrams. So again, they started at 0.25 milligram once weekly, increased every four weeks to a maintenance dose of 2.4 milligrams weekly by week 16. Now they could keep on the lower doses if side effects per, you know stopped them from reaching the 2.4 milligram dose in 16 weeks, um, but eventually they were tried to titrate up to 2.4 milligrams. Now, what did they mean by lifestyle intervention? So the participants received individual counseling sessions every four weeks to help them adhere to a reduced calorie diet, as well as increased physical activity with 150 minutes per week of physical activity. Both diet and activity were recorded daily in a journal by use of a smartphone smartphone app, and they reviewed these during the counseling session. Anybody who discontinued treatment early remained in the trial and was analyzed as part of the trial. Now, this is pretty intensive lifestyle interventions. I mean, I don't know how most people's experiences are with either being the patient or physician in this situation, but when you're counseling patients on lifestyle interventions, I don't know that I've ever had a patient who is coming every four weeks or heard of a patient who's going to their doctor every four weeks or dietitian every four weeks to help them adhere to this diet. So they're getting counseling sessions every four weeks, as well as Um, counseling sessions on both diet and exercise, which are both logged and tracked, and they're keeping them accountable by having them recorded down. So this is definitely more than the average physician-patient encounter. You know, this is pretty intensive lifestyle intervention. All that to say, this is a good comparator of what I think is even beyond average lifestyle intervention versus a, a medication in assistance with weight loss. So the main primary endpoints are actually co-primary endpoints for this was percentage of change in body weight from baseline to week 68, as well as an achievement of a reduction of 5% of body weight by week 68. So both of these were the primary endpoints, obviously very related to each other. Secondary endpoints, there was a lot of them. Weight ones were achievement of 10% body weight, achievement of 15% body weight by week 68, 
change in waist, for, waist circumference, change in systolic blood pressure, some different functioning questionnaires, uh, body composition was a secondary endpoint, um, as well as, of course, safety assessments were very similar to uh, previous trials that we've seen with semaglutide. So this was done in almost 2,000 patients. So 1,300 were assigned to receive semaglutide, and 655 were assigned to receive placebo. So 94% of participants completed the trial. 91% had a body weight assessment at week 68, and 81% adhered to the treatments as prescribed. Again, looking at the characteristics of the two groups, no glaring things that stick out for, okay, this is a big difference between the groups and how they were studied. Very similar characteristics with, of course, random differences between the groups. Nothing that is glaring and obvious. Okay, so now we get to the results at 68 weeks for patients who got titrated up to 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide versus a placebo. So in the placebo, they lost around 2.4 percentage points of their body weight. So again, this is patients who got the placebo injections, but also received the lifestyle interventions. So they were meeting every four weeks, going through dietary and exercise treatments and having counseling sessions about them and with various modalities to hold them accountable to this. And they achieved over 68 weeks, a 2.4% weight loss reduction on average. Now, of course, this is variable and some patients got significantly more than that, some significantly less, but on average, 2.4%. So with semaglutide added to the lifestyle interventions, at 68 weeks, patients lost 14.85% of their body weight, almost 15% body weight reduction. Now, this is a huge number. I don't think seen close in any obesity trial previously done. And of course, this is significantly more than the trials in diabetes. Now, we can talk a little bit more about why that is later, but short of it is that the weight loss is significantly harder in diabetes. So in people without diabetes, the weight reductions were massive. So the treatment difference was over 12% above placebo of body weight reduction. So there's two graphs in this paper. One looks at the in-treatment data, and one looks at the on-treatment data. So the in-treatment data is all the people who were assigned to the treatment. On-treatment data is looked at all the people who were actually able to stay on the treatment. So there's interesting thoughts about those two different distinctions, but the people who were on treatment had even a greater effect, so greater than 16% weight loss. Now, with placebo, this is more around 13 to 14%. However, it's remarkable nonetheless. Now, again, for in-trial data, for so for everyone, greater than 5% weight loss was achieved in 86% of patients who were assigned to semaglutide. Only 30%, 31.5% of people in the placebo group achieved greater than a 5% weight loss. Greater than a 10% weight loss was 69.1% of people in the semaglutide group, whereas in the placebo group is only 12%. Greater than a 15% weight loss was 50% with the semaglutide group and 4.9% with placebo. Now, greater than 20% weight loss, 32% of people with semaglutide. Only 1.7% of people with placebo. 32% of people is a real number. That's a third of the people who would be treated with this. Now, if you look at the on-treatment data, it's more of the same with slightly higher numbers. So 92% of people achieved greater than a 5% weight loss. 75% of people achieved greater than a 10% weight loss. 
55% of people achieve greater than a 15% weight loss and 35% of people achieve greater than a 20% weight loss for people who are on treatment. Now that, like I said, that is remarkable that 35% of people achieve greater than a 20% weight loss and 92% achieve greater than a 5% weight loss. That is staggering amount. And like I said, I don't think before this trial, a result of this magnitude was seen in an obesity medication trial. As far as other secondary endpoints go, the waist circumference decreased 13.54 centimeters with semaglutide versus 4 centimeters with placebo. Estimated treatment difference of 9.4 centimeters in waist reduction. BMI decreased by 5.5 points with semaglutide versus 0.92 with placebo, so an estimated treatment difference of 4.6 points of BMI. Systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Systolic blood pressure had a difference, a treatment difference of about 5.1 points, whereas diastolic blood pressure had a difference of about 2.4 points. And again, this is not a blood pressure medication. Benefits were also seen in, of course, A1C levels, fasting glucose, but additionally, C-reactive protein and fasting lipid levels. So fasting LDL was about 4% lower than placebo, which again, a modest amount, but still a 4% significant, statistically significant reduction in LDL cholesterol. C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation, was reduced by 46% in the semaglutide group versus placebo. And this was a significant amount, a statistically significant amount. Now, CRP is not a endpoint marker yet for outcomes. However, it is a risk factor that is acknowledged to be uh, contributory to someone's risks of cardiovascular disease. Now, I don't know that we have shown definitively that if you treat someone CRP lower, that you get reduced cardiovascular risk. That, I don't believe, has been shown. However, it is a sign of inflammation within the body, and it's remarkable that it decreased by 46% with the semaglutide. Remarkably, A1C decreased by about 0.3. Now, these are patients who were not diabetic, so they don't have as much A1C to decrease. You can only go so low with A1C. So maybe not surprising, but still a, signif- a statistically significant difference of a 0.3. But in, you know, obviously in tri- prior trials for p- patients with diabetes, they were getting a whole percentage point more than that. So almost a good sign in patients without diabetes that it's not tanking their blood sugars and causing their A1Cs to be ridiculously low. Now, there were a couple different scores applied that looked at physical functioning as well as physical and mental functioning. And less familiar, and I'm sure people are less familiar with what the numbers might mean for them, but they significantly favored semaglutide than with placebo for physical functioning as well as mental functioning. And this was across the board from all the different all the different metrics that were used. So this is a really interesting finding. So patients who had a BMI greater than 40 underwent a DEXA scan, which looked at their body composition. And of course, total fat mass and visceral fat mass were reduced from baseline with semaglutide. Now, lean body mass also decreased, which of course is slightly concerning. You know, you want to be losing fat mass, but you don't want to be losing lean mass necessarily. And however, the proportion of lean to fat mass increased. So people lost more fat mass than they did lean mass. Of course, if you lose 20%, 15% of your body weight, unlikely that you're going to keep all the lean mass that you had before. However, it is 
at least encouraging that the proportion of lean mass to fat mass increased. Although, of course, whenever you lose lean mass, something to keep in the back of your mind uh, about about the treatment and to be aware of it. So now looking at adverse events, now this is the key question. Okay, so it had great results. Do people want to tolerate it? Are the side effects too much? Well, so the people that reported adverse events, and this keeps continuing to blow me away, but 89.7% of people in the semaglutide group reported adverse events and 86.4% in placebo group reported adverse events. So only a difference of three percentage points between the groups who reported adverse events. But there is definitely more in the details of that. But it just shocks me that such a high percentage of patients in placebo report adverse events. So, of course, GI disorders, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation were most frequently reported, and in semaglutide occurred in 74.2% of patients versus 47.9% of patients in placebo. Most of the GI events were mild to moderate. Severe events were reported in 9.8% of people in the semaglutide group compared to 6.4% in the placebo group. The primary difference, so a difference of 3.4% in the semaglutide group over placebo, biggest difference that was seen was in GI disorders, 1.4% of participants in semaglutide group and zero in the placebo group, as well as the hepatobiliary disorders, so 1.3% semaglutide, 0.2% with placebo. In particularly gallstones occurred in 1.8% of people in the study group and only in 0.6% of people in the placebo group. Acute pancreatitis was seen in three patients in the study group and zero patients in the placebo group. That's a rate of 0.2 percentage of people in the study group had acute pancreatitis, but it was greater than zero in the placebo group. Now, interesting, hepatic disorders, so liver disorders, you know, the hepatobiliary disorders were increased, but hepatic disorders were actually decreased in the study group, so 2.4% versus 3.1% in placebo. Now, gallbladder-related diseases were significantly higher, 2.6% versus 1.2% in placebo. Perhaps the most interesting result from this is cardiovascular disorders. So this occurred in 8.2% of people on semaglutide and 11.5% of people on placebo. Now, this is not something that is an outcome that would guide treatment. It guides future studies. So fascinating that a 3.3% reduction, absolute reduction in cardiovascular disorders, but again, not a outcome where that hinges on guidelines and prescribing. Now, episodes of hypoglycemia, actually no difference. So 0.6% of people in the treatment group, 08 in the placebo group, which is remarkable to me. That really just highlights how low the risk of hypoglycemia is with this medication. Although with the caveat, these people are not on diabetes medications. So lowering their blood sugar is not going to result in hypoglycemic events. Now, in theory, as we saw in other trials, maybe if they're on other medications, there is maybe a slight risk. But in people who are isolated just on GLP-1 agonists, particularly semaglutide without diabetes, no hypoglycemic risk was seen. Um, Another really interesting thing, psychiatric disorders was seen in 9.5% of people in the semaglutide group, but was seen in 12.7% of people in the placebo group, which is fascinating if to try and figure out what the effect is there. Why were psychiatric disorders less 
in the semaglutide group. And again, this is not a primary outcome, so we can't be 100% certain in this, but hypothesizing for future trials, why would this be the case? Is it purely related to the weight reduction, or is it some other effect of semaglutide on psychiatric disorders? So again, in patients who got semaglutide plus lifestyle intervention, people achieved almost a 15% weight loss, with 86% of people attaining at least a 5% weight loss. And perhaps the key thing in this is that this was sustained at 68 weeks, which is a long time to show that this treatment has an effect, which in comparison to other obesity medications, is a remarkable amount of time and a remarkable effect. Now, of course, the side effects like we talked about that needed investigation further were gallbladder-related disorders, and of course, the GI side effects that were seen in patients. Okay, so that sums up this first step one trial with semaglutide. Now, this is what led to primarily the approval of semaglutide in the form of Wagovi. Now, that is approved for the indications that were studied here at 2.4 milligrams for patients who have failed lifestyle interventions who have a BMI greater than 30 or greater than 27 with specified comorbidities. Now, this those stipulations affect a large number of people. This is a big population for which they could receive this medication. However, the crux of this is that we need insurance companies to be willing to pay for this medication for people. Now, insurance companies don't want to pay for something that is cosmetic. So a good example of this is acne treatments. Very frequently, acne treatments are not covered to the same extent that blood pressure medications are or other things like statin medications are. Even though acne treatments are generic, they still will frequently cost a decent amount because insurance companies don't see it as valuable to cover it because it is a cosmetic treatment. Now, obesity treatments, especially with semaglutide, as of right now, have not shown cardiovascular outcomes. They've not shown endpoints in a specific trial yet where it is shown that, okay, the risks of X, Y, or Z are reduced. That is the crux of getting insurance companies to pay for this medication because as of now, even if, even if a patient fits the criteria to receive this medication, good luck getting it covered by an insurance. Now, if they can afford it out of pocket, that is more, more power to them. However, this is something that costs on the order of $1,000 plus a month. So this is not something that is a cheap medication, and it is something that is not currently regularly covered for by insurance companies. Now, certainly the cardiovascular results seen in this trial are encouraging. Do they mean for sure that the cardiovascular outcomes will, will end up having beneficial effects? No. And that's why we wait for a separate trial to determine for sure what the cardiovascular outcomes are. So you can see the logic that insurance companies are using because in their mind at the end of the day, they're doing a calculation to see are they going to be reducing the healthcare needs of this patient in the long term with this medication or is it something that doesn't affect the cost of the patient to the insurance company? So the good news is we don't have to wait much longer. Within a year, we'll likely see the results of the cardiovascular outcome trial for semaglutide, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but we'll talk about that later. And that will show us, and we won't have to hypothesize, what the effects in patients without diabetes of weight loss are. And I think this is going to be a really interesting trial because what the effects are in patients with obesity, I don't know if it's extremely well known in 
a large randomized controlled trial like the format that is being done. So especially at the levels of weight loss that are being seen, certainly with bariatric surgery and surgical treatment that has been demonstrated. Now with weight loss medications or weight losses in lower ranges, I'm not sure that that's been shown. So it'll be very curious to see what exactly the effects on cardiovascular outcomes are. So after the step one trial, they did something that seemed really smart to me. Maybe it was obvious to to do in hindsight, but this seems something that was really smart and teased out exactly what the mechanism was here uh, for the weight loss. So what they did was did an extension of the step one trial. So they took participants who were willing to underdo, undergo the uh, extension and be followed for another year. They didn't get any medication or placebo. So why follow them then? Well, they wanted to see the patient's response off treatment. This delineates when and what the treatment effect is and what happens when you stop it, which is an extremely common question that patients have. Do we need to be on this medication forever? Is this something that I can take and then once I lose the weight, stop? Well, this is what this trial is evaluating. So it included 327 people who from the original trial, week zero to week 68, lost 17.3% of their body weight with semaglutide and 2% with placebo. So they included people from both groups. Now, there's a really excellent graph here that I recommend looking at. The summary of it is that people generally gained back two-thirds of the body weight that they lost with semaglutide. Now, this is over a year, which the original trial was 68 weeks. So the treatment group regained 11.6% of the weight lost of the 17%, 17 17.3% of the weight lost by week 120, resulting in a net loss of 5.6%, while the placebo group essentially gained back all of the weight that had been lost. So they gained back 1.9 percentage points lost weight, and so they were just a net 0.1% lost. Perhaps just as interesting is a lot of the cardiometabolic factors, so blood pressure, cholesterol, those sorts of things, when analyzed, they returned back to baseline. So what I mean by that is that the patients who were on treatment with semaglutide, when they went off of treatment and regained weight, their blood pressure metrics or cardiometabolic metrics in general often returned to baseline. So let's look at a good example. First, let's look at their BMI. So their BMI baseline for the semaglutide arm was 37.6. At week 68, it went down to 31.2. Then at week 120, it went back up to 35. So just slightly below 37.6. Now for their systolic blood pressure, it started at 129, went down to 121, which frankly, that's a big effect. And it's almost surprising how much of an effect that had on blood pressure, which maybe it shouldn't be considering the magnitude of the weight loss that happened. But nonetheless, that is a remarkable metric. However, then at week 120, when they gained a lot of the weight back, their blood pressure, systolic blood pressure was 131. So any of the benefit gained had been had vanished for blood pressure, systolic blood pressure. We look at diastolic, same story. So originally 81 in the semaglutide arm, went down to 78 on treatment, and then off treatment went back up to 82. A1C levels, so 
initially 5.7, which is right on the cutoff of pre-diabetes range, went down to 5.2 in the semaglutide arm at week 68, and well underneath the pre-diabetes range, and then went back up to 5.6 after being off treatment. This is an interesting one that I'd pointed out before. We don't exactly know the significance of, but interesting nonetheless. So CRP was at 2.95. Again, this is a marker of inflammation in the body. On treatment, it went down to 1.28, so a dramatic decrease. Then off of treatment, it went up to 1.83. So not back at normal, but sort of in the middle between the original and the low point on treatment. So this trial is extremely helpful for physicians or pharmacists who are recommending what should be done about these medications and what are the expectations for the duration of treatment for these medications. Well, it seems like that as is similar with most ever other medical problems, when a treatment is stopped, that the treatment effect goes away. Now, I think this is probably what was expected from the company as well as from people who were watching and anticipating results. But nonetheless, we can show patients with confidence, here's what likely happens when you're off of treatment, and here's what happens to your health metrics generally when you're off of treatment. Now, this, again, doesn't apply to every single person. Some people are more successful than others to lose and keep the weight off after stopping treatment. Some are worse at doing it too. So again, this is a spectrum of people and you know individual patients aren't the average. But nonetheless, we can give them an expectation of what the average is and see how they fall off of the average. Now for a lot of people too, this gives them pause because they say, okay, so I have to be on treatment for indefinitely. You know, as of now, this is the only trial that, you know, we have that is showing what happens when you get off. And so, of course, we only have data for a couple of years, but for a lot of patients, this is showing, hmm, maybe for right now, indefinite treatment is the most likely scenario. And a lot of patients are worried by that because they don't want to hear that they have to be taking something for the rest of their life, which is a very common feeling and very understandable feeling. When patients are faced with choices of taking blood pressure medications, I think it's a very similar thing because typically blood pressure gets worse throughout life. Now, some people can make changes which lower their blood pressure if they lose a significant amount of weight or if they change their lifestyle habits drastically, their blood pressure can improve and they don't they don't need to be on blood pressure medications. However, the number of patients who are able to achieve that is not a, a really high number. So for many patients, that is something that they typically are end up being on their blood pressure medications lifelong. And that's a scary thing for people to be on. They feel like it's a bit of a failure for them. They feel like, wait a minute, I'm unhealthy now and I have to take this medication. So the idea of having to take a medication for weight loss the rest of their life is something that is not the most comforting thing to think about. And it's something that is a difficult conversation to have with patients or for patients to have with their doctor. Having this trial helps us provide context and evidence and numbers to the discussion that we're able to have with patients and is able to set their expectations of what happens on and off treatment to help patients make the best decision for themselves. And it really just 
helps give that background information. And like I said, this was a trial which I thought was really smart because we got to see exactly what will happen when you stop, which again was a big question for everyone. And surely we we need more data of what happens when you're off it for years and years and years. Just continue getting closer and closer back to baseline. Um, but perhaps even more importantly, the cardiometabolic you know factors like blood pressure already returned to baseline. So it's interesting in that way that a lot of the markers of health that we care about have already returned to normal with being off of the medication. For the step three trial, and this trial is a really good a really good trial to point to when looking at lifestyle interventions. So in this trial they tried to do more intensive lifestyle interventions to compare what will happen on treatment with semaglutide for weight loss versus just doing the really intensive lifestyle interventions because you say, okay, maybe we just need better lifestyle interventions. Well, in this trial, that's what they tried to evaluate. They took participants, they gave them a low-calorie diet provided by meal replacements. So they actually gave them meal replacements by portion-controlled meals. This was provided by Nutrisystem meal bars, liquid shakes. They were actually delivering them meals. This is for the first eight weeks only. They actually delivered their meals for them and set their calories. Okay, eat this every day. They subsequently transitioned to a hypocaloric diet, so a little more calories, but um, still in a hypocaloric state. They did this of conventional food um, with prescribed calorie intake based on your body weight. Participants were also prescribed 100 minutes of physical activity spread across four or five days. This is a specific physical activity that increased by 25 minutes every four weeks to reach 200 minutes a week. So during the 68 weeks of the study, patients also were provided with 30 individual intensive behavioral therapy visits with a registered dietitian. So this is almost once every two weeks they're meeting with a registered dietitian. They're instructing them on diet, physical activity, and behavioral strategies. Again, someone in the real world might meet with a dietitian a couple times, but this is 30 visits with a dietitian who is instructing them in diet, physical activity, and behavioral strategies after already receiving a pre-specified plan for nutrition and exercise, as well as an initial two months of meals and meal replacements down to the calorie provided to them by the by the trial. So this is like they set out to do an intensive lifestyle intervention. I haven't heard of anyone that I'm familiar with doing something like this in the real world to this degree. You know, someone meeting with a dietitian 30 times over the span of 15 months is really intense and if someone was up for that great for them. However, you know, people are busy and getting them to do 30 visits is remarkable. So this is a really good attempt at saying what do really intense lifestyle interventions produce? So the same exact primary endpoints, weight loss, percentage of people who hit 5% of weight loss, same secondary endpoints essentially. So we'll go through these results and they should be familiar because they're very similar to the step one trial. So in this, it's actually surprising the Proportion of people who discontinued the trial was similar between the treatment group and the placebo. So 16.7% of people left the semaglutide group versus 18.6% left the placebo group. Now, for semaglutide, the most frequent reason for permanent discontinuation was adverse events. 
and these are similar adverse events to things we have seen in the past, but that's 6.4% of people versus 2.9% of people for placebo. So again, a few percentage points of adverse events leading to discontinuation. The average BMI was 38 starting out with participants. So the results for body weight reduction in the placebo group, people lost 5.7% of body weight. The graph for this is really interesting because at around 32 weeks, people actually lost around 8% of their body weight. However, at 68 weeks, they ended up gaining a decent number of this back. Now, the semaglutide group, they also were undergoing the exact same lifestyle interventions. So they were going through the intensive lifestyle interventions as well. And what did they see for weight loss? So they saw 16% weight loss from semaglutide and intensive lifestyle intervention. So people who had greater than 5% body weight loss, 86.6% in the semaglutide group, 47.6% in the placebo group. Waist circumference decreased by almost 15 centimeters in the semaglutide group, five or 6.3 in the placebo group. Blood pressure decreased by 5.6 points. Systolic blood pressure in the semaglutide group versus minus 1.6 in the placebo group. And of course, body weight reduction greater than 10% happened in 75% of semaglutide group. Body weight reduction greater than 15% happened in 56% of semaglutide group. And body weight reduction greater than 20% happened in 30, almost 36% of people in the semaglutide group. Which again, this is something that's remarkable. So greater than 20% weight loss happened in almost 36% of people in the trial on semaglutide. Over a third, which when you're telling a patient the range of outcomes, that is a range, a reasonable outcome is greater than 20% weight loss, which is remarkable. Again, this is with intensive lifestyle interventions as well. Patients' LDL levels decreased by around five points versus placebo actually decreased around seven points. And again, CRP levels changed by almost 60 points in the semaglutide group for a treatment difference of around 47.6 points. So we had talked about the on-treatment versus off-treatment data before in a previous trial. Now for the body weight percent reduction for people who were on treatment for semaglutide was 17.6%, whereas placebo was 5%. So a difference of about 12.7% above placebo for people who were actually on treatment by the end of the trial. As you can imagine, a lot of the biomarkers that we look at were marginally increased compared to the in-treatment group. To me, this trial does a couple things. One, it provides a good trial on intensive lifestyle interventions. It shows here's what intensive lifestyle interventions can produce as far as weight loss goes. And we see, interestingly, that this is something that's hard to maintain for people. At 32 weeks, they hit a low of 8%, ending up around more 5.7% by the end, with a very gradual increase in between. Intensive lifestyle interventions are something that are hard to stick with, even when meeting with a dietitian 30 times over a 68-week period. Now, this is helpful because it gives us a baseline for what we might be able to expect when prescribing lifestyle interventions to patients or when patients who are thinking about doing lifestyle interventions. Now, again, wide dispersion between people, and certainly it is very possible to achieve significant weight loss from lifestyle interventions. However, we look at averages here. So on the average, people lost around 5.7% of body weight after 68 weeks. So over a year, it's hard. I'm sure a lot of people have personal experience, but then also talking with other people you know as well, sticking with a diet 
for a long term over a year is something that's really challenging. And it's something that people report is something that's really difficult to do. And I think we see that here with the data. Now, 5.7% body weight is great. And the benefits from weight loss, but then also from exercise independent of the weight loss are great. So, of course, I think people should be prescribed this irregardless of their weight loss goals. You know, people should be getting this advice and meeting with a dietitian as well as being prescribed exercise. And I think that's a great idea for patients, which is why I think the trial is so interesting because it's doing lifestyle interventions, but adding semaglutide on top. And so you can have a conversation with a patient or patient can have a conversation with their doctor about, okay, I am gung-ho about doing lifestyle interventions, but I want also want to utilize a tool in my toolkit to try and achieve the greatest weight loss possible to improve these biomarkers of health that we see in these trials. Now, I think this trial gives a lot of data to make an informed decision in that regard. I will note before we go on to step four that we did skip step two. The only thing in step two is they used a different sort of placebo method. And so results were largely not different from step one. They did a more intensive placebo study to see if the effects were truly isolated, and it was largely the same to the step one results. So on to step four, here they did a look at what patients will do on treatment versus off treatment. Now, all the participants in the trial started on the treatment of semaglutide 2.4 milligrams a week, again, ramped up from the dose of 0.25. But what they did was at 20 weeks, instead of everyone continuing on that dose, they switched half of people to placebo and they observed the effects since then. So at 20 weeks, they'd already lost a significant amount of weight. They had lost around 10% of body weight already at 20 weeks. So this was a significant amount. And then patients got switched to placebo. And what happened between the groups? Well, the body weight percent change in the people who continued on the treatment of semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams a week, continued to lose additional 7.9% of body weight. So total around 18% of the body weight. People who were switched to placebo gained 6.9% of body weight back. If you're looking at the paper, this is figure two, graph C. Now this is remarkable. So essentially when patients stopped the semaglutide, they went in a straight line, a linear line, when they were put on placebo and returned to a body weight under 6%, so around in the 5% range of body weight loss from the 10 to 11% that they were at before, whereas the semaglutide continued down to around 18% of body weight reduction. Now, this just provides further evidence that people who are off treatment given a placebo regain the weight back and that the effect is truly happening because of the semaglutide that is being prescribed. And this further lends credence to the idea that short courses of semaglutide do not sustain the levels of weight loss seen with continuing treatment. So for step five, they're looking at a two-year follow-up. So this trial, same exact co-primary endpoints, but looking at week 104. This is to evaluate what long-term effects does the medication have. Again, both groups are receiving behavioral interventions, and half are receiving the placebo, and half are receiving the semaglutide. Again, same dose, 2.4 milligram. And nothing really significantly different with how the trial is set up. 
So going on to the results, semaglutide group lost 15.2% of body weight, placebo lost 2.6% of body weight. Now, this isn't the intensive lifestyle interventions. This is just the regular. The estimated treatment difference was 12.6% of body weight. And when you look at the graph, it's remarkable how stable the body weight reduction stays around 60 to 68 weeks. So a little over a year, people pretty much plateau at the body weight than they stay at until 104 weeks. Now, the one thing you have to take into factor here is the placebo group around the same time hits a low and increases just slightly towards the end of the trial. So this is showing the effective lifestyle interventions waning from 60 weeks to 104 weeks. So this is also reflected in the semaglutide data. So there's largely no change between 60 and 104 weeks. It's really about the same amount of weight loss. Um, but we have to keep in the back of our mind that the lifestyle interventions are also being done. So if there was an increase in body weight and we look at the placebo group and they have an increase in body weight, that's a factor that's going into the semaglutide group as well. All of that to say the semaglutide group stayed at a stable weight from 60 weeks to 104 weeks. Now, when we look at the adverse events, it's over two years. So this is significant. What percentage of people had adverse events leading to trial discontinuation? Well, only 5.9% of people in the semaglutide group had adverse events that led to treatment discontinuation versus 4.6% for placebo. Remarkably, that's only a 1.3% of people above placebo uh, left because of adverse events. Again, the common ones that we see, nausea, diarrhea, constipation, vomiting, those are the common things we see, but they're mild enough that only a point 1.3% of people above placebo left the trial because of these adverse events. So this step five trial really gave credence to what happens over a two-year period, continued on treatment with semaglutide. We had seen before what happens when people stop after a year, a year and a half. Now we're seeing what happens when people stay on treatment for two years at a time. And again, I always think it's remarkable. The percent of people who lost greater than 20% of body weight at week 104 was 36.1% in the semaglutide group versus 2.3% in the placebo group. And this is maybe a good point as well, is that a lot of times when we're prescribing these lifestyle interventions, we're hoping that our patients can achieve something remarkable like a 20% weight loss. Now, to do that, especially when patients are at a higher BMI, we're thinking, okay, to get into a normal BMI range, or even just non-obese and overweight range, we need the patients to lose greater than 20% of body weight very frequently. And so the chances of that happening with, these are just not intensive lifestyle interventions, it's just regular lifestyle interventions, was 2.3%. So of the 128 people in the trial on placebo, 3% achieved 20, greater than 20% weight loss at week 104. So that is something that is very difficult for patients in the placebo group to achieve. Whereas with the semaglutide group, 36% of people achieved that, which gave the people in the trial who were on the semaglutide a real fighting shot at reaching 20% or more weight loss. That's a real number, 36%, you know, over a third again. So this is something that's remarkable and significant when uh, talking with patients and when patients are talking with their doctor about this and consideration of what we should do for people with obesity. Step six we'll go over really quickly. This was done in East Asian populations to see if there was a difference in treatment effect compared to previous trial groups. And 
the effect was largely the same. So estimated treatment difference was around 11%. Most trials have been around 12, 12.5%. So largely the same treatment difference result. Again, very similar pattern of adverse effects and very similar outcomes. So this just showed that in patients from East Asia with obesity, that this is a medication that provides powerful weight loss. For step seven, I couldn't find the results reported. It looks like the trial is completed, but for some reason, results are not reported for it. Um, so going on to step eight, they looked at semaglutide versus liraglutide, another GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is used for weight loss as well. So they compared semaglutide 2.4 milligrams with liraglutide 3 milligrams. Again, this is once a week, subcutaneously, and the trial format is very similar to the trials that we've discussed already. And so the mean treatment difference from baseline was 15.8% weight loss with semaglutide versus 6.4% with liraglutide. So 6.4% with liraglutide is not nothing. The change with placebo was minus 1.9%. So the treatment effect with semaglutide versus liraglutide was about 9.4 percentage points of weight loss. Obviously, they had significant chances greater of achieving 10% of weight loss, 15%, 20% of weight loss. And interestingly, the proportion of patients who discontinued treatment for any reason was 13.5% with semaglutide and 27.6% with liraglutide. And the number of GI adverse events were around the same between the groups. So this study really shows that for patients who are pursuing a weight loss treatment, semaglutide was more efficacious and actually less people discontinued treatment on it, as well as they sustained a greater weight loss. And again, this was at 68 weeks. So really demonstrating here the superiority of semaglutide over liraglutide when considering a weight loss treatment. So that is the end of the step trials that are done to this point. Now, the exciting thing that's coming up are the trials that are currently being done. Now, this trial called the SELECT trial is looking at semaglutide's effects on heart disease and strokes in patients with overweight or obesity. So same clinical criteria to include patients, and they're looking at the risks of heart disease and strokes. Now, as we saw in people with diabetes, there was a significant effect on these results, lower numbers of heart attacks, lower numbers of stroke. Now, it's very reasonable to consider, okay, this is likely to have a similar effect on people with just obesity, considering that we saw cardiometabolic risk factors decrease on treatment with blood pressure decreases, cholesterol decreases, as well as CRP decreases. However, we don't know that for sure, and this trial is going to really evaluate what the effects cardiovascular-wise are of semaglutide versus a placebo in patients with overweight or obesity and not diabetes. Patients who have diabetes are at a higher risk of cardiovascular events. It's a little easier to see a signal because people are at higher risk. So a little easier to demonstrate an effect in theory, but we will see because this trial is going to be reporting in September of 2023. That is the primary completion date of the trial. It actually started in 2018. So this is about a five-year trial, and we will see the outcomes of semaglutide on cardiovascular events in people with obesity. Now, why is this such an important trial? 
well, one, I don't know of anything beyond, of course, bariatric surgery, which has demonstrated cardiovascular benefit to patients. And the reason this is such an important thing to show is because, again, why would insurance companies cover a medication unless it's going to result in real-world outcome improvements for patients? Sure. Clinical metrics of obesity, physical functioning are great. And from a provider and patient perspective, that's something that is a very important outcome. And the patients see that real term. They have improvement in their lives because of the treatment, you know, as we're seeing in a lot of the physical and mental functioning questionnaires. However, from an insurance company perspective, they're saying, where are the endpoints that we can point to and say, these people will have less heart attacks, less strokes on the semaglutide treatment. So if it's demonstrated that semaglutide can do this, then that's something where insurance companies will be much, much more likely to say, okay, this is a worthwhile medication to cover. Currently, it's a very expensive one, like I had said before, like $1,000 a month or so. So for insurance companies to say, okay, we're willing to pay that, they want to see some hard outcomes that show decreases in heart attack strokes, because in their mind, then that reduces the health utilization that is necessary for their patients. And they're saying, okay, we know for sure this is going to have a positive outcome on these hard endpoints. Now, the reason, as I said, that people suspect that this could be a positive trial is because of the decreases in cardiometabolic risk factors that's been seen in patients, as well as the sub-analysis from the step one trial which shows decreases in cardiovascular outcomes for patients. Now, that wasn't the primary outcome. And you can't set guidelines or definitive outcomes from secondary outcomes like that. You have to show it in a primary outcome. So the primary outcome for this is the cardiovascular events. Let's actually look at exactly what the primary outcome is. So the primary outcome is a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke. So exactly the same as a semaglutide that was studied for diabetes. Now, this is in 17,000 participants. This is a massive trial. Now, why does it have to be so big? Well, the number of people who have heart attacks or strokes is fairly small. So trying to get a statistically significant number of people who have heart attacks and strokes to see a treatment effect, you have to include a lot of people. And again, this is studied at the same exact dose of 2.4 milligrams. So this is an exciting trial and the first of its kind for a medication treatment. And we will see the results and this will have a huge impact on the rest of the industry around GLP-1 receptor agonists. As we'll likely talk about in future episodes, this is a field that is rapidly expanding, whether it's combining semaglutide with other molecules for weight loss or whether it's competing molecules that utilize slightly different mechanisms that are achieving larger outcomes than semaglutide. This is turning into a bit of an all-at-arms race to who can show the greatest weight loss and treatment effect for patients. Now, if it's also demonstrated that there's cardiovascular outcomes for this, it'll be a huge, huge field. Because if we know that we're preventing patients from getting heart attacks, strokes, we can easily say then, Obesity is a treatment target that has real-world outcomes and real-world endpoints that are huge for patients beyond already the major effects of better physical and mental well-being and beyond the regular 
uh, effects already seen of reduced blood pressure, reduced cholesterol levels, etc. So that's something we'll be watching out for very closely and something that will be exciting to see come end of 2023. So those are the step and sustain trials, all the trials that are out there for semaglutide. Now, with a caveat, there actually is a third version of semaglutide called Rebelsis, and this is an oral version. So typically, patients do very fine with the injectable pen. However, for patients who are adamant about not using an injectable pen, Rebelsis is an option that's an oral daily medication. Now, this is in patients with diabetes, so it's repeating the sustained trials, essentially, and looking at it in patients with diabetes. Now, at the doses currently approved, the treatment effects are slightly lower than for the injectable Ozempic. And typically, it appears that it doesn't have a lot of advantages over Ozempic unless the patient is adamant about not doing an injectable pen. You actually have to take it daily, which most people end up enjoying if they only have to do the pen every once a week. But there are other trials for semaglutide out there for the rebelsis, for the oral medication, and these are the pioneer trials. I feel like I'd largely just be going over a lot of the same points of Ozempic and sustained trials. However, those are out there if you want to check them out. So that is a bit of a wrap on semaglutide at this time. It's something that I'm sure we'll be looking out for this year, but also in the future for a lot of different changes. One, there's phase three trials that are recruiting with doses up to 16 milligrams of semaglutide. So they see that with 2.4 milligrams, the results are good and tolerability is about the same. So they're saying, what happens if we ramp up the dose to 8 milligrams? What happens if we ramp it up to 16 milligrams? So expect to see some results of trials like that in the next few years, as well as there are compounding results where they're adding a different molecule to semaglutide. The most glaring one I see is cagrilantide, which is combined in a formulation they're calling Kagrasema. And this, in a phase two trial, showed massive effects on weight loss. So that's something that is undergoing a phase three trial now. But all this to say that there are multiple ongoing trials with semaglutide and other molecules, which we'll talk about in the future, which have huge effects on weight loss, as well as huge effects for type 2 diabetes. So this is an evolving field, and I'm sure we'll be covering it a lot in the future. The information provided in this podcast is intended for general educational and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis, or treatment. The contents of this podcast do not constitute medical advice and should not be relied upon as such. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, please consult with a qualified healthcare professional. The hosts and guests of this podcast do not make any representations or warranties concerning the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of the information provided in this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from your reliance on such information. Listeners should always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional before making any decisions regarding their health.